Episode 52 of Design EDU Today is going to be a different format from previous episodes. Today's episode is going to be a roundtable discussion between an industry professional and interactive design educators. The reason for this podcast stems from the opportunity of having three interactive design educators currently presenting at the annual CCAC formerly the Southeastern College Art Conference, in the same room with an actual practicing designer at a real-life agency in Columbus, Ohio. Coincidentally, at the same time, the AIGA Design Educators community just released a draft version of their designer of 2025, and I think it's great to get everybody in the room at the same time and talk about the report. Um... Because if you've been listening to the podcast, it's basically been about what I think we should be teaching and me asking professionals or educators to get their feedback on my thoughts. I think this format today gives me a great chance to get somebody else talking about what they think should be taught and then getting interactive design educators and professionals together to say, yeah, these things are what we really need to target immediately or the opposite basically say these things aren't really relevant to us on a day-to-day basis and we can then follow up um, from the education perspective on how we incorporate all of that into the classroom so basically in this episode it's like how do we get all these different requirements of entry-level interactive designers into the already limited time that we have in all our curriculums And welcome to Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary screen-based interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. All right, so I want to thank everybody to, uh, you know, today for, you know, participating in this podcast. Could you just like quickly go around and everybody say your names and say where you're from? Sure. Uh, hi, everybody. This is RJ Thompson. I'm an assistant professor of graphic design at Youngstown State University. All right. Thank you. I am Neil Ward, and I'm an assistant professor of graphic design at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. And I'm Phil Franks. I'm a partner and director of design here at Dynamic, the agency that we're uh, sitting in today for the podcast. So I guess kind of to, to start things off, um, I want to, the first one that I want to ask everybody, but I'm going to start off by asking our professional over here is, um, one of the competencies was, and I'm going to read it, describe the primary business operations, stakeholders, and the functional relationships among them in bringing messages, products, and our services to the public. And from doing this podcast, almost every single professional said that that was a huge problem. So, Right, yeah. I mean, I think that's a, one that stood out to me as I was breezing through this. Um, for us, and I'll, I guess I'll use our experience and how we operate uh, as kind of my baseline here, but every designer, UX designer here, in fact, everybody across the board, um, is very tuned into the business objectives. 
And we do see a gap. I mean, when we're, when we're talking to people straight out of school, young, young ones looking for their, their first hack at a career, um, the idea of design not just applying to what they're making is a huge gap that we see. And so like understanding like relationships and how to communicate and understanding need and digging into the psychology of people, um, you know, all the skills that we practice, like as we go into these tools that we actually create our outputs, um, the idea that that same principle is applied to the person I'm sitting across from um, is not something that we see a lot of competency in. Um, so they get that school here when it's, you know, how do I deal with clients? How do I understand their needs? How do I facilitate brainstorming? How do I get them all on the table to feel comfortable? I mean, it's, there's a lot of that human psychology baked up into it, which we all know and love as designers. Um, but yeah, that's, a, that's one of the things that you have to have on a project to be empathetic for our client and deliver a great product. So my fellow educators, how do you do that? How do you bring that business into the classroom, especially at an early level when students can't produce anything that the client could use anyway because the students just don't have that skill set yet? Pressure's on, Neil. That's a loaded question. (laughs) We've had a long day, everybody. We have. Um, Well, I think early on in design education, it's about getting getting their legs in design. So... At the freshman, sophomore level, it's really difficult to start injecting that. But we still go over brainstorming in class and how to do that. Um, but as we progress into upper-level courses, uh, at Drake, um, my last two senior-level electives, they were human-centered, design-oriented. So we were talking about all the stakeholders um, and what this project is how this is going to impact them and we also talk about wicked problems in the world so what are wicked problems they're not exactly solvable but to understand the impact that you're going to have when you attempt to solve that and then to have enough integrity to um to own those solutions like yes this is what i'm doing this is how I'm doing it, and I acknowledge that it's going to cause issues down the road, but this is where I think is going to be the best use of everyone's resources, and this is going to help solve the problem, or not really solve the problem, but it's going to help improve. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I have an interesting angle on this. So, uh, Phil, you mentioned like uh, there's a lot of practical knowledge that is developed on site right. as an employee. Right. You know, that kind of education is so unique um, to the agency that's providing it. So if Neil were working for you, he would learn one methodology. And then if he quits and works for your competitor, he's going to learn something else completely. And also find out that your methodology is not compatible Mm -hmm. with with everything else. So um, one of the things that I, I like to focus on with my students as soon as I get them. I usually don't see them until their junior year. So at that point, in some cases, it might be too late. But one of the things that I try to focus on with them is that um, this, this idea of the designer as the individual and how they plug into a group. So, uh, and you can correct me where I'm wrong, at least as it applies to, to your agency. Um, you know, I first off tell my designers, um, Agencies want to hire someone that they genuinely like and would want to work with as opposed to 
this idea of someone that can do everything all the time at a high quality, but they're the most like depersonalized human being ever and have no, pers- yeah, and have, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, I try to get my students to loosen up. Like That's a good point. My, my students in, in general, like, and Hey, I love you guys if you're listening, but you got to open up a bit. Like for God's sakes, you all have wonderful creative personalities uh you've got to share that with the world and by being quiet and intrinsic you're not doing that uh so i've got to break them out of their shell a little bit because they're never going to provide quality brainstorming uh let alone quality results if they don't break out of that shell even if they're comfortable actually even if they're lucky to get a job based on having that kind of personality and then also just don't happen to break out of their shell in their in their position so um So this idea of like you have to break out of your shell one to produce quality results. Two, um, now that you've broken out of your shell a bit, you have to understand that you need to be at times completely and totally reliant on yourself to provide high quality work product, um, and that is a very daunting thing to put onto someone, especially like a 19, 20 year old kid. But um, that strengthens their character later on. Um, and what I like about that is you can a- assign a task to that type of individual and expect them to get it done and then to also bring that to the group that they're working in and strengthen that group as a result. So that's the other thing. Bring your leadership to that group. So if you can form a group of leaders that understand how to lead and how to be led, that in turn is also going to lead to a higher quality brainstorming. Um, not just brainstorming, but results in general. So I have, and this actually has nothing to do with design. It's all about maturity. I love it. Yeah. It's all about maturity and like getting, getting these kids to grow up a little bit more quickly than they want to. And that means applying the pressure because you know, you have a junior designer and you put a deadline on them, you know, they're terrified probably. The stress is like super high because they like you, they're lucky to be employed, they understand that, but they've also earned that right to be employed. So they don't wanna lose that. So they work their asses off to provide that quality product. And you nailed one more thing that I want to touch, touch on too, which cause you're striking a chord of mine. That's like very, very, I'm passionate about this. And I love that you're starting education at the self level. Yeah. That's amazing. So kudos to you, my friend. Um, I think if there's a third prong to that, I and mean, maybe I interrupted you before you got, you got to it, <laughs> but I think the idea of vulnerability is a huge one. Um, right. Yeah. Because I think the, you know, as a designer in, in most scenarios, like you're looked at at this kind of like, shining light of creative and you're the big idea and you're the one that's going to solve the problem and effectively like that's a team effort like you have one thing that you're going to execute on and you're going to need this person and this person this person to do it and knowing when you need to stop yourself to get others inputs and help to be able to ask for it um, that goes a long way especially with a young designer and that's wisdom at its core being able to recognize that now is the time i shut up (laughs) and 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 learn and listen Um, so, and that again is not a design trait. That is just a trait of a good student. Um, and, and again, this idea of failing forward. So you break out of your shell, you understand group dynamics and how to lead and be led, and then also not be afraid of failing and more importantly, asking questions. So I purposely put my students into situations that they cannot 
work themselves out of it's to the point where they have to ask for help. So I have some students that are obstinate and will not do it. They will work their butt off to try to figure a problem out. And you know what's interesting is that typically those problems tend to have the easiest solutions, but it requires investment and sometimes multiple people and just being observant. And for God's sakes, knowing how to use Google effectively, right? <clears throat> that does go a long way. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. so on the collaborate idea, and I, this will lead into like another question I had was, it, so I pulled out another thing from here. It says collaborate in teams using specific techniques for leadership, communication, and negotiation. And I think we all kind of, again, agree with that, that we need to be teaching collaboration. And I'm, I'm kind of looking at, at Neil for this one and for, for Phil in that when you're in a graphic design program, you're generally siloed. So you're teaching designers to collaborate with themselves on something that they, you know, that isn't a natural collaboration. So how, it's like, what, what does a collaboration look like for, for you here, Phil? And I, I'm also, you'd like to hear about your collaboration <coughs> to like support it. Absolutely. Um, so a course that I just have the pleasure of teaching this past fall is an app design course at Drake University where it's a collaboration between computer science and journalism and graphic design. So it's team taught by three professors, computer science, journalism, and myself. And <clears throat> the students have to collaborate on creating an app. I mean, we give them a prompt and then they have to narrow down that idea and build an app from the ground up. So they have to collaborate. All of them have to collaborate on the idea, the sitemap, the user flow, the wireframe, what it's gonna look like, how it's going to function. And in that process, there's only one graphic designer, one journalism, and three computer science students in each group. So they're really having to collaborate with one another and understand each other's language and try to figure out when a computer science student says they're designing that that means something completely different than the graphic design student saying I'm designing for the interface. So that that is a way at Drake that we're collaborating or we're forcing students out of their design studio <laughs> to communicate um, with other um, disciplines and other methods of thinking and um, talking and conversing and whatnot. Um, that is um, actually very in line with what we do. Um, I think I love that we started at the foundation, kind of like the core being of a person, um, because even with that, like you start to touch on things like empathy and communication and all the things you have to have in order to kind of break out and understand other people. Um, that's essentially how we run projects here. Uh, we have a discipline and another discipline and another discipline that come together and are, are banned around a business problem. Um, you might throw on other things on top of those scenarios like budget constraints or technology constraints. You know, if a client's working with tech legacy technology that you have to work around, so your solution can't always be pie in the sky, there's your idealistic reality and then there's reality. Um, and so those kinds of things, we really give our junior people a chance to trial by fire. So if it's, you know, build an estimate out for a new project, go in and understand the business requirements, come together with the project team and start to work through some of those constraints with the team around you to really understand like what solution we can actually build. Um, and I don't wanna get too off topic on this, but another big topic for us is um, the idea of feasibility. 
is a big thing what, that I see with even engineers and designers alike. Um, you know, I think, and I'm speaking of my own experience coming out of school, everything was my best case scenario. You know, it was what everything, what, what I believe is the best case scenario amidst the constraints that I had. And having constraints put on groups of people, young people in a group dynamic like that to solve, I mean, it's design at its core, right? I mean, it's the definition of design, design with constraint. Um, <laughs> yep. And, and building, building something that is a project, but around something that can be more applicable to like a, a, a business need. Um, when we get to talk to people, like that's the gap. We were talking briefly before the podcast started about the applicability of real life business endeavors that we get hit with every day and what kind of constraints um, we're hit with to then pass on to the team to say, go solve these problems. It's not design a beautiful app that solves a random problem that you think would be cool, like you know autonomous cars or anything like that. It's, you know, we need to build a business to business tool that facilitates surveying of our 4,000 hotels around the world. Our staff is comprised of age groups of X, Y, and Z. They have this technology constraint. There's a lot of depth to those needs that really start to form our solutions. Um, and a lot of that is design, in air quotes. Um, and design in its, in its own right is, you know, creative visual output, the, the requirements of the business, the technology constraints, all of it in itself is design. Um, and that's how we think about it. Um, but I love, I'm so energized by the fact that you guys are collaborating cross-functionally um, already because, like, that's how it works. Like, you cannot work in a silo at all in these environments. I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, and it's based on something you said about having junior Ds um, like do budgeting. Right. I love that in the sense that it gives them this entrepreneurial point of view that they may not have had previously. Right. Uh, you know, I'm always charging my students to become entrepreneurs, even if it means like forming a single member LLC and hey, you got to do your business taxes and like, you know, save up some money and and be responsible for your own successes in that respect. But like uh, my students are, are too, mostly too timid to do that. And if they do happen to uh, form their own business, it's like maybe five years after graduation when they've just been laid off for whatever reason and it becomes a necessity. Right. Yeah, it becomes a catalyst, a necessity and not necessarily a desire. Um, but I like the fact that you're making them do that because it gives them that worldview of these little things cost money. You know, what, even like you changing, hitting the undo button takes, it might take a second, but we can monetize that. Yeah. And, and that's how you have to do it. And I love that, what that does is it reframes design uh, as, as not even necessarily a, a business. Like that's just a general thing, but like our students spend so much time in front of the computers trying to get the right design solution. And then, like, I, I would love it if they actually priced out their time. Right. Like, right. oh, well, this mediocre design in my portfolio actually cost maybe $57,000. Right, right. Yeah. And that knowledge yeah. and the, being able to say those things against um, real prompts, like real endeavors. And, um, and I'm speaking again from my own experience, but, like, I would, I would mull over the, the finest of detail all the time with no constraint on time of like how long I had to spend on a project, nor did I ever cross-reference that with a computer science major to say, hey, I have this option. How many hours do you have budgeted against our overall budget to make this thing come to life? And we do that today. That's a practice of dynamic where once we design something, our entire design team has to go check against our balances 
on front end and say, hey, front end, check us, and we're collaborating along the way, do any of these things push us outside of our boundaries of what we know is scope, what we know is budget? The, a lot of time, you may have said 20 hours to do this, but they're making these estimates well before we design something. So how do we collaborate to make sure that empathetically, my solution fits inside of your constraint? That's a big, a big gap that we see with people coming out of school. And that's going to, that's going to ultimately create the best results possible because it's an efficiency model. Really? Right. I mean, yeah. well, and I think design too, as you think about being a, even a junior designer in an agency, when no matter if it's 80 to, to 4,000 people, you're designing not just for you, the customer, the business, you're designing for that company that you're working for. I mean, that is a, that's a thing. Multiple masters. Right. I mean, yeah. you're, you have to, and actually we have a little design manifesto that I wrote some years ago about our focus areas. Um, and it's, you know, user, client, the business and the business, the entrepreneurial mindset that you mentioned a second ago, the business is theirs too. Like every single person out there is not a cog. They manage an aspect of the business being financially successful or, you know, a project being delivered on time, on scope, on budget. Like all that stuff is a part of their job description and they have little nuanced ways. Obviously, as they rise in the organization, they become more adept and in depth with those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, it's a huge part. I want to jump in here and ask Phil a, a question. Um, and this is from the benefit of, since I've done all this podcast for long enough now, seeing repeating patterns and one industry repeating pattern is students, when they come in, don't do things fast enough. And so I'm just wondering if like, if I, Phil, if, if I came to you and said, hey, this is my project that I, I want to introduce. Um, this is how long I think it t should take. And I said to you, like, can you give me like what it really, what, you know, how much, how long would you have in the real world to take? Would you be able to like do that relatively easily? Yeah, totally. I mean, we, when we do estimations, I mean, it's there, obviously they get the funnels wide at the top and then you start to narrow things down. Um, we always use the analogy of building a house and the answer is always yes. You know, you can have the, the big square footage or the marble everywhere or whatever it is in your house but you're gonna pay for that kind of cost. It's gonna take more time and more energy. And we really set that foundation from go with our clients and with our, our people. And the answer to that question is like, we'll dig at you a lot about, you know, what is it that you want it to do functionally, aesthetically? What are your time constraints? Um, because you can't have all three. You can't have the, the trip, tri you have to have two of the three. Um, so which is gonna give and how you're gonna work with that. But we give estimates all the time. I mean, we do projects from anywhere from quarter million to two to $3 million web applications, mobile applications. Um, and sometimes those are really complex in scale and you don't know all you need to know. And so to build a, an estimate um, for something like that, we may even go into a strategy period where our design team, our business requirements team, our development team actually works with the client for a duration of a month to three months to uncover the rocks that we can't see up front to be able to say, okay, this is actually gonna cost 2.4 and not instead of the, the two that we thought, or and sometimes it goes the other way. Um, but distilling that down to the, to the newest person in the door, we're, we try to do that every day to make that applicable so that when they're getting a chance to touch the flame, they're applying their skills in the way that are in line with the vision and the constraints that, that we have from start. I have an additional thought and, and maybe you can reinforce this. Um, I like the fact that by having them do that, it invests them in your company and not in the monetary bottom line, but the qualitative output, the results. So it, it, it's like, well, you know, if we could do this more efficiently, it's going to yield a better result. Yeah. 
and yeah, and better results will beget more work and more work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and some people don't even consider that, especially when they're fresh out of school. Yeah, absolutely. No, go ahead. I was. Well, I was just going to say, I think the, the idea of efficiency is interesting and you, that the speed was the original question. Um, the philosophy that we have, it's, we have a lot of these kind of random like Pinterest quote philosophies that you might find if you, as you're browsing, but anything can fit in a box is what we say. Anything can fit in a box. It's what are you going to put in that box that, that makes sense? So if you're, is your box this big or is it this big? And what, what you go in there, like use those as your boundaries and those boundaries use are everything that we've talked about over the last five minutes, but giving them incentive to say like, cool, like it's our job to figure out how to fit our best solution based on what we know and what we can find out into this box to deliver this for our client on time, on scope, on budget um, with high client satisfaction. I mean, those are our key pillars. So um, this is for my fellow educators. I'll start with, with Neil. Um, so my question is, like the time thing, because like I said, I keep getting battered with, in this podcast, with, with how long things take. Students don't work at the velocity of, of what the industry really is. And, and so I'm like, how, how do you go about like determining how long a project takes? And I'll be the first to admit that I go based on I've got semesters. And I know I have certain objectives that I want to achieve by the end of the semester. And then I figure out how long <laughs> I need to fit each thing to achieve that objective in the semester, which is radically different than the profession. So, oh, that's a loaded question. So, how do I go about time? Uh, well, as I've the more years that I've been teaching, the more flexible my time frames get. So, at the beginning of the semester, I set up my syllabus and I have a, a schedule of about how long I think things should take. Uh, which is not a professional schedule or time frame. <laughs> um, but things change through the semester, and there are student needs that have to be addressed. So a lot of times that well-laid-out schedule just doesn't happen. Um, and at Drake, we have a lot of students that double major or triple major, and they have a lot of other things going on outside of the class so I could be very optimistic and really really run them ragged but in the end it's either going to produce really crappy work or they're just not going to do it so the the time frame of working in a professional environment that's something I feel that they'll learn in their internship and they'll learn when they get to that first job but to me, it's more important that they learn the, the course outcomes and how to go through different methodologies and processes to get to that endpoint, rather than trying to get that, okay, get this logo done in two days and go through the whole process for it too. <laughs> right, and I, I, wanna, I love what you're talking about with processes and stuff, and we, coming in here um, and seeing people every day that, that do this, it, one of the things that I'm always talking with them about is, I think about, like, the box mentality again the processes that are being taught by you guys the wonderful processes of research and how to you know define yourself in a project and work with other people like all that stuff is also flexible and i think like the rigidity that you can teach somebody is actually counterintuitive to the flexibility that you might be giving them and the flexibility in a good way um meaning that like those things from time to my methodology and what i can fit inside of those constraints can go up and down based on what I need to do, and I can put myself inside of that scenario and that constraint and be just fine. There are a lot of people that we get a chance to interview, work with, and, and you know experience here where 
you know, they'll say like, there's just not enough time for me to do my, my best work. And I said, Ooh, that's not a great answer. <laughs> like, that's not a great answer. No, it's not. Because you have to be able to bend and flex like everything that creates the product you're doing um, with the time that, that you have. And so flexibility per what you're teaching is actually a wildly beneficial skill for a designer to have coming out to say like, I can do this in two days if it has to be a quick turnaround, but here are the things that I'm going to sacrifice. And here are the things that you may see on the other side that you might sacrifice. May it be revisions or the amount that I come to comps with table with, like all that's going to change because of that. And that's more, more the entrepreneurial mindset where it's like, mm -hmm. what can I fit inside this? that's going to benefit me, but also benefit them. I have a really unique perspective on this. Um, and you know, more often than not, it kind of results in the phrase like Thompson's a prick, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, some of this is like a, a test in futility or a test in patience. So for my, for my advanced students, I personally would be fine if they worked on one project for the entire duration of the semester. Um, and I'm, in some respects, I wouldn't even be focused on it being the best possible quality work product that they could develop. And the reason for that is like, okay, uh, it, let's just say it's a brochure. I have a student design a brochure. Okay, well, you're gonna have a round of revisions. I want them to revise it into the ground until they do not want to look at it ever again because that is actually a mirror situation of reality. And at the end of that five month period, if they get a C in the class, you know, it's not just because of the design, it's because of how they approached resolving the, yeah, the adversity. Um, I faced so much adversity working for Heinz. I mean, it's a huge international corporation and like one thing I would have to revise like 50 times and you know, that builds patience and a, a patient designer is a better designer. So I'm not against situations like that. And I've put some students in those situations, particularly if I felt that it was a lesson they needed to learn. Um, and uh, otherwise, you know, I, I try to give the appropriate amount of time for uh, the project. So my projects are a bit more grand in concept. So, you know, I, I would maybe do three weeks to a month depending on what it is. So for example, um, right now I have an intro class where they were, it was based out of a grant that I received where they have to design a social cause poster. Two posters as a matter of fact. One's an infographic where they have to understand a subject and the issue behind it logically, numerically, all of the data, and then they have to create an emotionally resonant counterpart to that. So they learn all the research, and then they create a concept that pulls at your heartstrings, that gets you to act in accordance with what their goals are. Then they have to take both of those prints and then animate them using the same design assets. So it's consistency across the board. We upload those videos to YouTube, now they're starting to understand like intelligent expressions across all channels, one deliverable across a variety of media. That's really uh, a great skill to have to understand that perspective and worldview. And then they have to build a website out of HTML and CSS that not only is in line thematically and aesthetically, but features that artwork in interesting ways. So it could be like a one page parallax scroll that shows all of the information, it's a beautiful design, but they know that like when they're at an agency, they have that one client 
the thing they will know the best is everything about that client. And replicating that scenario in the class is, is very worthwhile, but that takes time. Um, Phil, I, I just, again, let the listeners know, I kind of sent everybody the, you know, the, the, a draft that drafted Designer of 2025. And so I asked Phil to like, kind of like look through there and pull out what he, whatever he wanted to pull out for whatever reason. So if, I'm gonna ask him to do that now. Yeah, totally. Uh, we were speaking a little bit about this before we got started, but um, uh, thematically, I pulled out a couple things that were really interesting to me um, that, I, that we do see a lot of, and I think we really value um, as we start to think about the next wave of people, not just designers, but engineers and so on and so forth. Um, one of them was uh, relevance and data and validation. So being able to, and, and we're, we're experiencing this as an agency right now, over the years we've been finding more and more ways to practically build that type of process into our workflow. Um, how do we use data to validate prior? How do we use um, uh, you know, these user testing scenarios and things like that to the best of our ability that fit inside of our scopes and things like that? Because for us, um, as we're teaching methodologies, and I loved your point earlier about like methodologies change from place mm -hmm. to place, um, there's also another constraint that is market and what market's going to want out of you as an agency and what you can sell as an agency to clients. Um, you know, some people value that depth and breadth inside of data and inside of validation and market research. Others, they love ra rapid iteration and ideation and they want concepts thrown at them and they don't need as much validation. And so being able to test the waters and know which method works for the scenario that you're, you're in the theme, though, is true across the board. Um, a lot of our big clients that we worked with this year all were craving it. Um, and I tend to watch the market when it comes to our touching of clients, um, hearing what they're telling us, where we may fall short, um, how some of our processes are working well and not working well. Um, and one of the things we uncovered today was under that umbrella was, you know, we need to continue to evolve our validation practices of design um, to make it not about, I saw this, so it works, or you know this company's doing it so it works, or we tested it on usertesting.com with a small group of people. Um, more depth to that research and analysis, and how do you bring that to the table? Um, another one that I think kind of was um, maybe s scraped. Oh yeah, can I ask you a go question before we move on to the next yeah. spot? So with um, so is what you just talked about that the idea of like you know like validating what you're doing is, is that going to be in the realm of the visual designer or is that going to be in the realm of the user experience designer and can you give like more of a like a little more of a concrete I love it example of great it? question and um i think as you guys maybe know with where students go after they have the opportunity to, to work with you guys um, it varies dramatically um, based on the roles and responsibilities and specialties that any house has. Um, you know, you may have teams that are much larger with the creative um, in air quotes and you have, you know, visual designers, brand designers, motion, UX strategists, design strategists, all of those people. Um, you could have much smaller teams. I mean, we actually have a very lean team that is UX designers, UI designers, and strategy team. And that's what we have here. And you loop in front end. Um, in our ecosystem, the strategy team and the UX team are part of that responsibility. The visual designer is actually doing it on their own. I mean, they're going out and gathering their own market research, their own validation as they do their ideation to get, some th get things going. But they're working really closely with our UX strategy team and our strategists to be able to bring those to light. Um, but other agencies, there are dedicated teams that just spend their waking hours, 40 hours plus a week, 
digging into usability research, going on your Nielsen's and everything like that to dig into what works and what doesn't, hosting studies behind, you know, glass and things like that, going out to stores and giving mobile apps with gift cards, like all of that stuff is happening. But I mean, again, per the comment about market and, and what you have to spend, like that constraint, like you either want people to buy that and you have the cap to do it or you don't. Um, and it's evolutionary. You don't flip the switch on that kind of stuff. It's what is what are you, are you being told? How do you slowly integrate that into your process? And over time, I mean, I was saying earlier, we're, we're only 14 years old as an agency, um, working with some really tremendous brands around the world. And we're just now getting to the point where we think that stuff is beginning applicable to us um, with the brands that we're scraping. So it can vary. It can vary. I think that to get the deep results, you're going to want it to be its own role. Um, to get you know the broad strokes, it could be a, a really creative, smart, witty team that has the ability to, to do that as part of their process and creating. So are either of you incorporating that into the, the classroom? Um, so far, just going back to that app class that we're teaching, um, <clears throat> the students in that course, they are rooted mm -hmm. in user research and we actually re require them to go out and find users that they feel are going to use the app. So it's not just their classmates or the faculty, it, it is people who are using, who will use the app. So they've, they've had to go down to the farmer's market and kind of get people on the street to test out their app. Um, they've had to wrangle some freshmen on campus to be like, hey, you know, try this out. If you, you know, needed to know what, uh, where this uh, jazz event was tonight, how would you do that on this app? And getting out there and either confirming what their assumptions were with their user needs or um, thinking, oh, well, nuts, that's not, <laughs> that's not solving that user need. It's so valuable. <clears throat> Very much so. And just having that, um, just having that uh, confidence, I want to say, uh, to walk up to a stranger and ask them, hey, can you test this out for me? We're trying something new. We're breaking and... out of your shell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, breaking out of your shell, exactly. Yeah. Basically, so, I mean, those what you were talking about is definitely being involved there but in other courses not so much just because one there's not time and two there's not time <laughs> both in terms of the semester schedule and the student time as well so um you can you can edit this part out but i would love it if you could put a bleep in with this <laughs> um i would i i think for for me personally it comes down to the this uh emotional re response i get to the lack of literacy with my students to the point where i say read a goddamn book um yeah <laughs> i i struggle with research with my students it's something that i absolutely enforce because it it's as simple, it's you're right or you're wrong. If your information is incorrect or outdated or misguided or misinterpreted, you're wrong. So you have to look at the right data sources and the right information, be it qualitative, quantitative, or whatever. Uh, but you gotta find the right sources to, to, to interpret correctly. Um, for example, I have a student um, who's a really great designer. He's one of those kids that you know is going to have a great career and he's got the aesthetic down, but he's designing for himself. And mm. as a consequence of that, 
his work consistently fails uh, conceptually and in meaning. So, uh, and it's a it's a tough pill to swallow because right. it's like, well, I thought I designed it right. It's like, yeah, you probably did, but these are I don't know if this is right or wrong. Like you designed it for yourself. So, for example, uh, the project I mentioned earlier, where they had to design a poster and then an animation, I gave them three weeks to do all of that. Um, which is a lot and yeah tight turnaround and um, he spent two and a half weeks just designing one poster and Uh. he kept spinning in circles spinning in circles and I said well let's let's talk about your process talk about your research where did you research he's like well I just found this stuff online like well did you call the agency that I don't know did you call United Way no did you email United Way no well do you think your information is right or wrong versus United Way. He's like, well, United Way would probably have better resources because I just saw some of this stuff as external links on Wikipedia. Um, so it's like, okay, well, scrap everything, just put it in the trash and start over. Um, you need the best resources and the best information possible. And I don't know anyone, any agency that would uh, suffer suffer that. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we we really reinforce the research uh, as much as possible. But again, it comes down to the fact that it's a maturity thing. And, you know, the students have fun designing. They don't have fun reading. I teach history of graphic design. They hate reading. I can't get uh, a class to read seven pages of a 14 page chapter of which the latter seven pages are pictures. So reading, and this is something that I've heard from everybody, reading is, is just a tough thing for our students to, to want to do. It, it yeah. has to be in the form of a, a website that's bullet pointed. Yeah. And yeah. within notes. like three yeah. minutes. <laughs> that's yeah, I was going to say haiku, but. <laughs> yeah, <serious>. yeah. <laughs> well, to go, to go back to the research, um, element we do we have a research and application course which is a senior level elective which might be a little late in the curriculum but we have it we have it um and a a project i did last year was a wayfinding project so they had to they had to look at the building and there was no signage there but they had to create an assumption or write down assumptions as to what needed to happen in the building to solve that problem. And then they actually had to use visual anthropology, ethnography, observational research and interviews. They had to learn what those things are. They had to learn about them first. (laughs) Yes. But then they had to go and actually do them within the space. So they, they felt odd photographing people doing like going through a door or stopping and questioning, you know, where do I go from here? Cause there's no signage. But part of that was like, you know, you get to people watch <laughs> one of the most <laughs> then, fun things. Yeah, exactly. And then you get to extrapolate from that what, what the user needs are. So in that course specifically, we, we went into um, thinking in systems as well because that's one gigantic system. So in that course, there was a really, really deep research component to solving this design problem. Um, But again, that's at the senior level after they've had internships and whatnot. So my hope is when they graduate and go to their first job, they understand the amount of research that goes into a project. You know, uh, one thing I'd I'd like to 
add to that is experience as research, not like actually sitting down and reading information. Very well said. I I think our students, designers in general, are more finely attuned to research through experience. So after they break out of their shell, I think you can, I don't know, and I might be a bit forward here, but it's like you read all of the quantitative information, whatever it is, whatever conclusion you come to may may rival that thematically against what um, a designer may find on their own through what they intuit. The idea of intuition here, especially as a designer, is so important, but you have to cultivate that, that intuition and you have to train it, and that's best done just Maybe it's just experiencing it. Like you want to find out what a design agency looks like and how it functions. Walk in the door, shoot, shoot them an email and walk in the door and say, I'll make all your photocopies. I'll make all your coffee for the day. Or if you need a compliment, you're feeling down. I'm there for you. Dude, fortune, and, fortune favors the bold. Exactly. Fortune <laughs> favors the bold. And you know, a part of it maybe coming back to that breaking out of the shell, but I found that where in, in absence of my students actually investing in reading and understanding actual written information, they find other sources to experience it. So uh, a, a situation in my practicum class, um, we, um, the, the students were asked to create some ads and some rep- annual reports for St. Vincent de Paul Society, which primarily deals with homeless, the homeless population, feeds them food kitchens, things like that. So I, I said to my students, well, you can look at all of their history or you can actually go to the, the shelter and feed these people and talk with them. And they uh, learned so much through that experience that that data didn't even matter. Um, and that was, that was um, not only was that cool to see, but how rewarding for right. them. Right. It's like, <laughs> come to class, <laughs> do your projects, do well, and you know, you won't necessarily end up on the street but uh there are a lot of very i mean it actually touches on another point that was in this document that was about the core values about you know understanding like what it is and why you're designing things um you know i think the generation that is coming up in the game right now wants to have more of that finger on the pulse of reality right there gone are the days where your students and the people that that work with us today go to corporate environments sit in their desk for 30 years and try not to get fired you know, that's, that's not what they, they don't want to do that. Like our generation is not that. Um, and so giving them opportunities to do that where there's pure value, pure impact. Like you can't walk away from an experience like that and say, I didn't do something good for someone today. That like just sets their skills on fire to let them know like what I do for the world is this thing and I can impact through design and through execution of this problem to help someone like that, even if it's one person. The thing that I always say is like, you don't have to build the next goddamn apple. Go to a food kitchen and serve somebody and like, that's impact. Like, right. that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you know how hard that is though? Because I like literally, I, I, there's a class where I make my students ride the flipping bus and that becomes the basis for anything they do for the rest of the semester because you can find an infinite amount of design problems by riding the bus from (laughs) time, from like personal space, whatever. But I can't tell you the excuses that I get. I can't even get them to get on the damn bus. They're like, well, I missed it or I ran out of time. And it comes down to 
If, uh, Consequence. Fire them. Yeah. <laughs> and I would fail them, but there's there's this little pesky thing called the student handbook, and you cannot assign work that is outside of class time. Like you can't like assign that kind of physical stuff if you go look at your student handbooks. And um, so you you don't ride the bus during your class time. <laughs> And there's and there's and I've tried that, but there's like the, the the unfortunately I've only got like two hour blocks, and by the time we got to the city, there would be literally oh, no okay. time because I've gotcha. actually like I'll rent a gun, I'll rent a bus, <laughs> we'll go to the city, then I'll make them do it. But it's just like I can't even get them to like go. I don't know if it's because they don't see the value in this. It's user research. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I've been really in tune to this idea of like value proposition. And I actually use an acronym called WIFM, uh, what's in it for me. And I think if you distill everything down to any interaction that we are as people, like even today, like each of us sitting around this table, like there's some WIFM for us. And that's why we're here. Um, also, we're highly engaged in, in the community and this thing we're talking about. But starting there, and, and f it's not a valuable thing to them yet. Like it's not a valuable thing for them to invest their time when they could be out partying with their friends or having a beer on, on Friday night or whatever it is to ride the bus, like getting them and maybe it touches back on the maturity thing, but getting them the chance to kind of experience that own journey. Um, it's, it's actually kind of the way that I look at it, it's a natural curation process. You know, like if I want that special student and I want that person that's going to be hired at, at Dynamit, um, they are the person that does that and everybody else is going to find out the hard way that yeah. they're going to get rejected by life in, in a lot of ways. It's good advice. <laughs> so I, I just kind of noticed the time, so I don't know how much longer, we only have the room for about another 25 minutes, but I don't know how much longer you have. So I figured I'd let you get to a couple more of the points that you wanted to pull out. And yeah, there was, like respond to them. I'll throw this on the table for you guys because I'm curious as to what, how you guys think about this um, in the EDU space right now. But um, we've mentioned a couple times today, and it's in this document briefly about the idea of, and you, coming out of your shell is really the, the cornerstone of it, but um, how do you communicate and how do you effectively like ne negotiate is a word you used earlier, but I, I th don't think it needs to be adversarial. The idea of this um, natural persuasiveness that is design um, is not just making something that's, that works functionally, beautifully, visually, all that stuff and solves business needs. It's psychologically getting people to believe mm -hmm. in the idea and that is a huge gap that we have today with some of our junior talent. And when they come out, a lot of it lives on the execution side, but they haven't yet had the intentional reps or come out of their own shell yet to be able to say, I believe in this so hard that you're going to feel my energy around my solution. I'm bought into this so hard that I've done the research and I've, 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 I'm here. You're gonna believe me and tell that story effectively so others can actually feel that same energy. So I, I would say from the student perspective, um, and so from the student perspective, they've got a lot going on. They're not just taking design classes, but they're taking other classes that they probably have no interest in because if they had their choice, they'd probably be designing all day, right. which is ironic because I know some graphic designers now, they'd be like, I would rather not be designing at all or at all today. Um, but uh, from, from the, the, the teaching perspective, we, we look at that and it's just like, okay, we're only gonna be able to get maybe 45% potential, if not lower. <laughs> yeah, maybe that was a bit gratuitous, but uh, it, it depends on the day. Um, so I, I think on that note, 
because we're challenged with students that are busy with everything, um, where our energy is suppressed. So, um, for example, I believe in the power of design as a cultural catalyst for change, like a change for social change, whatever. I can make you start smoking if I wanted to. It could be disastrous or it could be great. Um, and I think part of, part of my issue is that I always understand the power that design has to make someone change their mind or act in a certain way. And because I get students that come in, they're busy, they're tired, I can't necessarily share that, that enthusiasm with them because they've just, they've just been beaten by the system. So, um, yeah, again, just coming back to that, like how do I constantly reinforce the power that design has to not only transform uh, others but themselves through that process Quite frankly, they don't understand the, the influence that they have at right. their fingertips. And they won't necessarily get that until they see like their first successful, real professional project. It could be a simple brochure. It could be a billboard. But as soon as they see that, they're like, oh, wow, I can actually change a lot here. Um, so that's so this idea of social good like that's effect that can be affected at a very early level like design a poster that uh, makes someone donate to local charity XYZ there it's done you just enacted influence that's what your design that's design is a tool your job is an influencer and design is how you get there. Uh, that's what I really want to convey. And maybe it goes back to the to the value thing we talked about a couple minutes ago. Because like, I think to tell that story and communicate that impact that you can have and, and be able to share that with, with you guys, much like you said, you could get me to start smoking. I mean, that's true. Like we are, we're in a space that is to influence. And some of that is visually executing, but the other half is like verbally executing, not only with the people externally who you're touching with your work, but the people who you're getting a chance to collaborate and work with. And how does that dynamic work? And so like, maybe it's a value thing. Maybe it's a confidence thing. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not knowing how yet to articulate those skills that they have bottled up inside of them that are just now realizing. But something that fosters that goes a long way because here, even our junior designers, one of my practices is they present to every internal team it's just a rep. It's rep, 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 reps. And I have I practice with them prior. We come in and we go as a combined front. They're the leaders. I get to back them up on things that they miss. And then we have a reflection after. And we sit down and talk about like what did they do well? What could they work on? Give some critical feedback. And it's a it's a practice and a process. I was just curious if there were things like that that you guys were doing inside. Well, I, I think that the problem that is I perceive you mentioned it is like not having the a, it's two problems. They're not having the confidence in what they put forward, and B, yeah. not yeah. Um, not having the confidence in what was the other one. Well, anyway, it, it doesn't matter. I think that's like fundamentally a flaw in actual design education. Whereas, I if I hand a student a website and say design this website, there there's no ownership of that solution because they've I've pulled you I've, planted that in there. I planted yeah. I've planned the solution. Now they're just decorators. They're decorating right. the solution. Right. There you go. So they there may you not, go. They may not fully believe in there it to go. begin with. Whereas if they went from a research-based method, they would say fundamentally, yes, this is what we need to deliver. 
now they go about it. And I think that's fundamentally like a problem in design education. Right. That's a great it point. Takes you a few that's years. a great point. Really great point. And that's the, se- oh. the selling part. That's why right. they, don't, they can't sell it because they don't, they they don't, don't, they don't believe the value it. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Neil, who's Thanks. your favorite designer? R.J. Thompson, of oh, course. Oh, what a sweetheart. <laughs> uh, well, just real quick, uh, the reason I ask that is I, I always, you should always ask your designers, uh, and I'm telling you what to do here, like anytime you interview someone, like ask them who their favorite designer is because, I mean, we have art hits, design history classes for a reason, but think of it this way. Uh, let me reframe the question. Who's your favorite musician? Oh gosh, I'm across the board. You're across the I'm board. I'm agnostic. I just you love have, good sound. You have one artist or band though that really influences you. Like you turn them on and like your creative energy just hits. Right now it's Avicii. Okay. I don't know that band or person. <laughs> EDM. It's okay. EDM. Okay. So, but uh, on that note, like I asked my students, like, who's your favorite musician? What type of music do you listen to? Why do you listen to it? Or even like movies? Because like, you know those things resonate and like and sometimes like that it has that transformative effect right. so it's like you should look at your own work in that same lens with that same viewpoint because you know uh if if you find what you like in your own work or in others like if you're a big Milton Glaser fan like okay you can channel that mm-hmm. and you can express it in a new way right. with a new perspective right. so that may that. Help. actually I love that feedback to students and even people that we're talking to because I also have a concept that I, uh, it's called modeling and it's, it's one of the things that I do in life. And, um, you look at, I mean, creativity in itself is a acknowledgement, a recognition, and then a, a twist of what you believe its impact could be based on your interpretation of the, what you're seeing. Right. I mean, I think that in its core is what I've put as my definition of creativity. And a lot of that is, is the trails have been blazed you know, the, the glaciers of the world and others of the world who have done these things across the board, like you can look and learn from the trail that's of success that they've left and then take the pieces and pick up the breadcrumbs to do the, the things that are best for you mm-hmm. to define your style. So I think it's a beautiful piece of advice. Damn it, Milton, leaves some for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so does anybody else, did, it, how, do you, did either of you get a chance to look over the, the, the sheets and, and see if anything like you wanted to like, bring up out of the designer of 2025 and I know you still have one we'll just jump to you yeah 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 yeah. I mean I think there's um there's one that really steps out to me and you mentioned it earlier um it's the idea of design being more omni-channel it's a it's about it being not just one medium but all mediums um the idea of brand the, the trend they put is branding physical and digital experiences um as an agency, we're, we're always at least three to five years out in front of, of business trend. Consumers are in between us and business. Um, and so just now, our, our organizations we work with are starting to think about, hey, well, how do we digitize our retail experience or in-store experience? How do we make things more omni-channel to bring them in to the space physically so then interact with them in digital tools? How do we have a customer database that knows you when you go here, here, and here, and then when you're in-store, our associates actually know who you are, what pant size you wear? Like, that's crazy to think about, but it's where everything's going and where consumers now expect brands to understand you. I have a fantasy of walking into any one of my favorite stores and getting hit by an associate that says, hey, Phil, you purchased these jeans last week. How are they fitting? Do they fit good? Do you need any advice on the next pair? We have a new season coming out next, next week. Like, this kind of stuff is amazing, and it's not just about a, web, a marketing website. It's not just about a campaign that you see as you're getting on the bus. 
it's about how design is more impactful. And so the, the system that you set up with your projects is a really good starting point for that to get them thinking about not just building websites and not just building print materials, but it is ever changing and it's becoming the circle of influence. Um, and digital's leading. I mean, digital will lead if it isn't already um, leading that charge. Um, but yeah, like that, that trend of like crossing mediums is a huge thing. And a question I ask designers all the time is, what are you, what are you inspired by in your work? And usually a lot of them are like, I love doing promotional posters or, or gig posters or this and that. I love book covers. And I'm like, that's all great. Like, and no disrespect to that, but have you thought of X, Y, and Z? Um, and I don't know if there's like, um, a fear or the adversity wall that is learning a new medium and things like that. Uh, the transition from any sort of print to, to digital. Um, that's back on a design education again, because yeah. remember we're the ones who tell them what to do. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately that's us. But yeah, yeah that, that I'll stop talking now and give you guys a chance, but the, the omni channel idea of everything is design is a, is Absolutely. a big one. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned different mediums um, in a context and process course where they're introduced to new methods and processes of design. I made them stay off of the computer. Um, they were creating posters for pedal art show for bike month for the month of May in Des Moines. And there were five different mediums they had to work with. So found paper and found items. They had to use the photocopier to enlarge, to use the different color channels. Um, they had found material that they actually had to mold and bend and create a poster out of. Um, they were on screen for, or they had to take photos of bike parts, put them in the computer, and then glitch them to create a poster. And then they had to screen print a poster. And then the final piece of all that was they had to take a piece of every poster and put it into an animation that was going to be shown at the gallery. So they just moaned and groaned through the first part this isn't of that. Photoshop or Sketch. What am I doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Working with my hands. Oh, my gosh. They're not even using Sketch. So yeah. no. <laughs> That's another topic, tooling. But um, going back to RJ's comment earlier the the f iterating and they had to they had to do these really quickly every single day the next poster we were starting on and the last one was due so it was pretty immediate um but it was iterations of the same thing but they had a really really interesting process now was it really was it conceptual Meh. but as they were working through this, concepts started to float up to the surface, yeah. So it was just a different method of working masked by this. And um, it was really nice, I think, what, last week? One of the students in that course that had graduated said, I love that project. It prepared me for agency life for Amen. all the iterations. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, and I think, and sort of jump in before, but as you think about, like, you guys are, you guys are the, the platform, the springboard for them to jump into their first hack at a career. Um, and you, I'm sure you talk a lot about growth and where you want to go and defining your vision and what does that mean for you. In an agency world, like there is going to be vertical growth and lateral growth. Mm -hmm. And you know, you can come in as a UI designer and really find out that you enjoy UX, but if you've not had any chance to kind of exploit those things early on in your career in school, you're not gonna you're not gonna know those things or have any ability to kind of hone that craft. Um, so I love the idea of like positioning that growth mechanism for them as they come into the real world to say like. I actually can do 
print, I can do interactive, I can also do some animation and motion. Like you become so much more marketable and growable inside of an organization when you have those types of skills. Gary, what was the question again? I'm, um, that, I'm that guy. Omnichannel branding, physical and digital. Yes, okay, thank you. <laughs> Um, well, you, you had asked a, a question about like to your designers, what inspires you the most yeah. right now? I've been obsessed with, uh, wayfinding signage digital and otherwise. So, I mean, Neil was with me. I've been photographing <laughs> stuff. Um, so that's, what's inspiring, uh, to me mostly, mostly because it's, uh, me having a physical, you know, I can touch these screens. I can touch this signage. I can look at the craft within how it was built. Um, so I've been focused, that's been resonating with me. Um, and not only that, but it's so public, you know, I love work that's just in your, not in your face, but it's ever present, you know, to the point where like you kind of forget about it, but it's like someone made that 20 years ago and it still holds up. Um, but the, the omni-channel printing and, and printed and digital and then sometimes verses. So my students general, the way that my program is, is set up, I have a wide variety of cla interactive classes I teach, but they are only required to take two. So generally the upper, you know, cream rises at the top, like those students take the remaining interactive classes. And consequently, they're more in line with your agency, for example, because they're ready for that. But the students that just take the two classes, they're generally the students that say, I've experienced interactive and that is not something that I want. So they are only a single channel creator. Um, and you know, instead of being ahead of the curve, which is where I try to place them, they purposely set themselves behind the curve for whatever reason, fear, anxiety, timidity, immaturity. Um, and one of the things that I tell those students is that if you don't take the upper level interactive classes, that's fine, but you always have to keep learning. And your and employers, and I don't know what it's like here, but- It's a core value. Uh, well, yes, <laughs> but uh, well, like one of the things that we're experiencing, the three of us, is that, oh, we have to teach our students how to do everything and they have to be a master of everything. And, and I tell my students like, all right, I'm not gonna teach you Premiere at all. If you wanna use it, learn it on your own and good for you for doing that. But if you don't have the time to learn Premiere, at least know what it's capable of and build that into your strategy because there will always be specific producers of specific content. You know, my students can do front-end web design, and they may be beautiful designs, but you are not going to let them code it because there are expert coders that do that perfectly. So, like, but those students know, like, this is what I need to do to make those developers happy. So if I understand the full capabilities of what they can do or of what this software can do, I can build that into my strategy and then better uh, accommodate that multi-channel marketing. Yeah, I love that. The boundaries is where you need to know. Need the to boundaries, know. exactly. Yeah. So I just noticed a time. So does anybody have like kind of like one thing they want to add before I, I kind of send us all off? Um, I would like to thank you, Gary, and your beautiful face oh, for uh, hosting the, well, for leading this podcast and all the, the myriad episodes that you have. And, and Phil, of course, thank you for, for having us here at, at Dynamit. And um, 
you know, hosting and who bought the pizza? Who should I? Okay. So I should really be thanking Gary, but I'm going to thank Phil for that. <laughs> well, the coffee and the drinks came from Phil. So I love the, uh, the dialogue guys. It's been really energizing to talk to you guys today and, and share thoughts and hear thoughts from you guys. So thanks for the, uh, the forum to do so. Yes. Thank you guys for your time. All right. That's all we have time for today on episode 52 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank Keith Jenkins, Associate Director at Dynamit, for doing a lot of the initial legwork in agreeing to host the recording of this podcast and introducing me to Phil. Now, I want to thank my in-person host and guest, Phil Franks, Senior Director of Design at Dynamit, for taking the time to participate today and supplying me with well, all of us, with drinks and giving us a tour of the amazing Dynamit space. Next, I want to thank R.J. Thompson, Assistant Professor of Graphic and Interactive Design at Youngstown State University, who planted the seed for this roundtable discussion. I also want to thank Neil Ward, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at Drake University, for participating after an exhausting morning giving back-to-back -back presentations at the CCAC conference earlier today. I also want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and the CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases and updates about the podcast, visit the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Design EDU today, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes and Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve this show, contact me through the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU today.